Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. My name is Riley Foreman and I am a second year MBA student here at Sloan. It is my privilege to introduce our wonderful panelists and moderator, for painting the black, the state of baseball analytics. We, of course, have the one and only Bill James, who was surprised that we weren't in the Bill James room, but is very happy to be here <laughs> with you all in the Pat Summit room. Um, we have Cole Figueroa, Director of Baseball Operations from the Tampa Bay Rays. We have Doug Fearing, co-founder and president of Zealous Analytics. And of course, we have Nate Silver, founder 538. And with that, I'll kick it over to Nate. Please use the hashtag baseball analytics to submit any questions via Twitter, which Nate will use um, to ask our panelists in the last 10 minutes. Thank you so much. Cool, well thank you guys for all flying out here today. It's one of the first uh, in-person events. I've done like this in like two years. Um, Unfortunately, there are lots of things going on in the baseball world that aren't necessarily as fun as we might like, so we're going to start with a little bit of that, but hopefully um, stay true to the theme, and I'll talk about, about the state of analytics. But I want to start with a number. You've probably all done forecasting at some point in time, right? Um, so the number is 144. Over or under 144 games played by the uh, Boston Red Sox this year? Regular season games. <laughs> <laughs> Under. Under, why? <clears throat> it's the same principle as an airline. If the airplane t airline tells you your flight is going to be 20 minutes late, you've got a 50-50 chance of being four hours late. <laughs> it's the same thing. When they start canceling games, it just gets easier. Cool. Uh, I'm an optimist, so I'm going to go over. And I think me working for a team, I'm legally obligated to say over. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that discounting that information, but. Um, I would go just under. My, my line was 140. Yeah. I, I feels like a very close, you know, it, I think both teams and players are starting to feel the pain of missing games, and, and, and obviously fans want to watch baseball. So I think, I'm, I'm hopeful that this month uh, they'll figure it out. Yeah, it's kind of a weird line because um, it's either like 162 or like 140-ish or like much less than 140, you know, it seems like. Um, but we were talking backstage. I mean, it does seem like, to me as a naive outsider, it seems like the sides aren't that far apart given the amount of money on the table. I'm stealing your hot take now. Um, you know, so it seems kind of weird. It's a little bit like the, uh, the Harden-Ben Simmons tray where it just kind of made too much sense. And as much as people might have said, well, it's not going to happen, like... There was a lot of economic value to making that trade happen, but, um, but relations are complicated, right, between the players and the owners. Yep. I mean, how are you guys, how is your preparation different in a circumstance like this? Are you doing more work or less work or different work? Are you planning for different contingencies? Um, well, you know, we're, we're Zealous Analytics, we're, we're uh, a research-driven analytics company. We provide essentially capabilities to help support, support the internal analytics groups that are partner teams. And so we're, I mean, we're still doing research, right? But the, the fortunate thing about analytics is there's data so we can still work, right? And I think that that has been consistent uh, both with the lockout and COVID when games weren't being played. There's a lot of work to be done. Uh, people are continuing to try to move forward. So yeah, so we're busy, which is good. Yeah, I think similar to Doug. I think this time has really helped us focus on maybe longer term projects that we haven't been able to do, um, but also prepare for when the floodgates open of transactional um, ins and outs and really trying to uh, put ourselves in the best position when those, when those obligations do happen. I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, the company I work with now, Sports Info Solutions, is in the middle of a huge new project and exp expansion and we're busier than ever, so. Um, and in terms of preparing for new potential rule changes, I mean, what I want to get at is like, let's say you have a system that's built on the last X number of decades of data. Um, how much has the nature of baseball changed to where you want to look at recent data primarily or, or only? 
That's a good question. I think particularly with, with the CBA negotiations where you know, there's, there's potential changes in terms of how players are paid or value in arbitration or, or, or pick up service time. Um, it, it changes the kind of surplus value calculations that you're doing. So, so ideally, you'd like to have a system that is robust to that, right? That you, you can sort of still value players' talent, but then overlay the rules. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated. If I could jump in, that's an, that's an age-related question. Uh, the older you are, the further you look back. That's really true. Uh, uh, good friends with Tom Tango, and we talk about stuff all the time. But Tom's focus ends about 1984, whereas mine goes back to when I was a, a, young, a young kid and a huge fan of Tycom. Just kidding. Uh, the, uh, but it is, it is quite true that the older you get, the more your focus goes backward. Yeah. I mean, just thinking about problems in general and how we end up solving them, I don't think we're going to totally throw out the old relevant data. I think a lot of it is understanding how much weight to place on certain attributes if it's a pandemic season or if it's a season that happened 10 years ago. Um, and I think really it's just critically thinking through those calculations of how you weight those certain attributes and then moving forward. I mean, that's my bias, is that you'd rather have more data across different regimes than less data across um, one regime, right? Which doesn't mean that you have always have like a fairly high amount of data in baseball. It's not like you're an election or something where you get very few data points, but still I think people uh, underestimate the value of having like a robust data set over time. Yeah, and it's um, not just like the data, right? From like, uh, like a CSV, it's some of the sentiment you're getting from scouts, it's some of the sentiment you're getting from your PD staff. Like these all things are highly considered and depending on the transaction you're making, I think, uh, they come into play differently, but uh, both qualitative and quantitative are things that we look at all the time, and I think it's important as the rules change, we need to hear our coaches, hear our scouts, people who have um, kind of eyes for these things and try to pick their brains before things move. Is there any evidence of the aging curve having shifted? I mean, Bill is famous for um, identifying 27 as the peak performance for the average player. Um, has that become more peaked or more, uh, more flat or later or earlier? Does it matter positions versus uh, pitchers? There's been a, a little distortion. Well, of course, the, the steroid era abnormalized everything and it took a while things to go back to normal. The, uh, there's a little distortion in the curve caused by teams preferring players with less experience for arbitration rights and, uh, and, and some teams, we won't mention the Tampa Bay Rays, some teams have been very successful in, uh, some teams have been very successful with younger, less proven players, and that makes it more feasible for other people to try it. So there's been a little distortion in that one. Are you guys finding anything different? No, I think it's right. I think teams, you know, where, where uh, I hope analytics has had an impact is being able to identify some of those younger players who can immediately perform at a major league level. And so it's given you know, a lot of organizations the opportunity to, 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 to allow those players to play right, and contribute. And, and it has meant that the, um, the distribution uh, in Major League Baseball has skewed younger over time. Um, how about COVID itself? So sports is interesting in that you have a relatively objective way to measure physical performance. Um, if you have a guy who had COVID, I guess a lot of players have had COVID at this point now, um, does that have a measurable effect on his performance? Uh, I can honestly say that's not something we've looked into. So <laughs> I don't, I mean, I, it's, a, it's a good question, right? I mean, there are definitely long-term implications of COVID. I think most players recover and are back to their, to 100%, but we have seen some examples of players who have taken longer to recover. And um, I, I, you know, it's true for professional athletes, it's true across the world. Yeah, I think it kind of just hits at the individual um, impact on the person. Um, and we probably won't know the answer. We still are trying to learn a lot about how this is gonna affect players long-term. This may be something that you know, five, 10 years from now, we have a better sense of what's going on, but um, it's just dealing with those things as they come and helping that player in that moment get through those certain times. But I can't say that any team 
has a great grasp of how the long-term effect, and not just from a sickness perspective, but from an actual baseball playing perspective on the workload on the arm, the workload when you're swinging a bat, um, you know, the longevity of the player in general. I think those are some, some things that you'll have to consider as well. That, that is a great question, Nate, and you know why? Uh, there's no organized data. We can't study it because there's no organized data. So what we have to do in our field is start to organize the data. We, we, have, to, we have to start somewhere getting all the data we can and presenting it in an organized form so that, so that uh, you know, brighter young people can study it. Yeah, I think the assumptions we make too is that a lot of the players as well don't want that information out there for good reasons. So it's really hard to make the assumptions like, did this player have COVID? Did they not have COVID? Um, and so I do think, like Bill said, it makes it really sticky when you're trying to really understand what's going on. Um, another uh, experiment that got run during the COVID era, not that the pandemic's over, was uh, playing games in front of empty stadiums. <laughs> um, I know the NBA, there's a significant diminishment in home court advantage that actually has continued this year to some extent. Um, has it decreased in baseball? I think it depends on whether you, who you have cardboard cutouts of. If you have a <laughs> cardboard cutout of you know, Donald Trump, that has one effect. If you have a cardboard cutout of a Ukrainian leader, that has a, that's a different effect. No comment. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know the answer, but, but it, it would seem that it should. Right? And it's, it's a similar effect when you look at uh, home field advantage. In baseball, you see differences in strike calling, for example. And there's an assumption that that has some fan effect on it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a good question. I would, I would expect that across sports there is a uh, diminishment in the home field advantage. Bill, I have to ask, I mean, what's your take on these various rules changes? Are you like a pro-DH guy or anti-DH guy? Well, uh, I... I, I am old enough to remember that we adopted the DH because the run scoring levels were abysmally low. Yeah. And that is no longer true. So I would rather get rid of the DH, but I understand that, you know, that uh, that's not the popular side and you move on. The, uh, I intensely dislike the designated runner in the 10th inning at first, but by the end of the season I was okay with it. I don't, I don't think there's, I, baseball has terrible aesthetic problems. We all know that, right? But it isn't really the rules that are causing these things. It's, in many cases, it's the lack of new rules uh, that, that is causing that problem rather than any new rules, I think. I mean, Cole, Doug, do you have hot takes you're willing to share? <laughs> let me, okay, let me, which of the various proposed rules changes or things that have been attempted in the minor leagues, what's your favorite and your least favorite? Hmm. I think just being a former player and kind of understanding some of the, I was, I am old enough to not remember what it feels like swinging a bat, but young enough to remember some of these rule changes start to take effect in the minor league level um, that I think the one Bill had talked about for a, a just viewership standpoint, the runner at second base and extra innings, I think most fans are like, wow, this looks completely different. But for a minor league player, there's like, thank goodness, this is actually going to get over here. There's nobody in the stands, and I really want to go home tonight. Um, so I will agree with you in one sense, but also highly disagree with you in another sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the fact that we're trying to evolve and try to bring some action within baseball, I think it's a good thing. Um, Obviously, from the player side, you're so ingrained to routine and trying to stick to that routine. When you do get something thrown at you, it is a little bit different, and there's a little bit of an on-ramp there. But um, I, think, I think as long as it's got the best interest of the game in mind, which I think most rules do, um, I think that's kind of what you're hoping for. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I tend to agree with Bill, right? This is, the, the issue is the lack of rules. The, 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 the game has evolved. I mean, you, you see, batters evolve, pitchers change, right? There's this game theoretic, and the league has to change too. So, right. so as, the, as the players evolve and play in different ways, we need to adjust the rules to make the game continue to be compelling. But um, point out a couple of rules that, that definitely work. I mean, the new rule about you don't kill the catcher unless you, you know, yeah. just because he's there, uh, that's worked completely, right? 
And I, the rule that limits the, uh, pitching changes in an inning, uh, that is just, everybody accepts it now, right? Nobody, nobody fights about it anymore. I mean, I, you know, again, as the closest thing to an outsider on this panel, I mean, I could say that it seems like the rule changes aren't radical enough, right? That other sports, the NFL, um, which is the one sport where postseason ra ratings are pretty steady over time. Everyone else is dropping to some degree. They'll constantly reinvent and, and tinker, and it kind of seems like baseball is doing things five years too late, ten years too late. Do you agree with that critique, or do you think there's something to be said for taking a more kind of conservative approach toward rules changes? Um, I, w I think they're, they're if, if you look over the past few years, the pace at which they're willing to consider rule changes has gone up tremendously, right? And, and, and the fact that the league is willing to experiment uh, and try things out in the Atlantic League or in the minors and, and sort of see what the impact is, um, yeah, I think, I think that's a really positive signal. Yeah, I think the kind of hit on it is that when you are at the NFL or even to some degree the NBA level, you don't have a development system to try these things out. So you might see those things actually come up in an NFL game a little bit quicker, where I do think that on, on the baseball level that, you know, there are a lot of things that get tried out. Maybe you don't see them as much in the media because it's at an A-ball affiliate in Bradenton, Florida. But um, I do think there is some, you know, acceleration with this as well. Okay. Is that disruptive to player development at all, or do the guys mostly adapt to it pretty well? I mean, I guess, yeah. I think there's definitely some instances where we spend a lot of time thinking through these problems and how it's going to not only affect the players, but the coaching staff and how we can best optimize for those things. Um, it just kind of depends on the rule and kind of how different it is from the normal, what normal baseball is. Um, and some are pretty seamless. I think some of the shifting in AA this year was, at least from talking to some of the players, wasn't as huge of a, a deal to adjust to, whereas maybe some of the base dealing at the A-ball level was a bigger adjustment um, on the pickoffs where they're limited in pickoffs. So guys essentially were running after a couple of pickoffs every time. Um, so it just kind of depends. But uh, for the most part, I think players are kind of doing OK with it. Could, could I ask you, Cole? Is, is uh, your job title, Director of Baseball Operations, uh, is vague enough that I don't actually quite understand what you do. I don't either. Uh, oh. <laughs> well, you do that very well. The, no. uh, the, uh, but is it essentially a bridge between the analytic world and the, and the uh, scouts and, and coaches? Is that a large part of your job, or, or is uh, just listening to you, it sounded like it was? It has been for a while. Um, this particular role is probably more, it's a new role, so it's probably a little bit more in the office side with development of staff and just general um, transactional in and outs, but for a long portion of time, the PD space is one that I've been in, and um, it's something that I'm really interested in because it's probably an area where um, there's still so much to be uncovered, and we're just kind of tapping at the very edge of what could be done in that space. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, teeing off that a little bit, like what are the frontiers, it's kind of the cliched most asked Sloan panel question of all time, I think, right? Um, but what are the frontiers of, of areas of research where we're just getting our feet wet in baseball and, we, and you think we'll know a lot more in, in say, five years? So if you, if you look at sort of the evolution of, of analytics in baseball, we, we started by looking at play-by-play -play stats, right? It was, it was trying to understand what the value was a walk or a strikeout and, and better how uh, that led to teams winning games. And, and Bill did a lot of that seminal work looking at runs created and win shares. And, and then there was the uh, pitch effects era, right? Like finally as analysts we could work with ball tracking data where we can understand how a pitch moves. How does it break? What's the, how, how does it look coming out of hand? And talk to coaches and players in a language that they found compelling. And I think we're, we're sort of on that cusp now with player kinematics. So thinking about uh, limb tracking data and you know, measuring, instead of uh, measuring the ball and the players in sort of two-dimension, two well, I guess the ball in three, but players in two-dimensional moving around on the field, now it's each point in the body in three dimensions and uh, hundreds of frames per second. 
And I think what's exciting about that is as you start to build those predictive models, now even more analysts can start to speak the language of player development, that we can talk about, oh, your, your stride direction's off. And we can see that from the data and have that conversation. Um, so I think you know, it, it, the nice thing is that's kind of happening across sports. Um, but baseball is at the forefront of that. And yeah, it's been exciting over the past few years. Yeah, I think we're in what I'd call like hyper-individualization time, where every player from an anatomical, biomechanical, or even neurological stance is getting things to them that can help their performance um, you know, one to tenfold. Now, are we always hitting those marks with every player? Probably not. Um, but I think that is the goal, is to take an individual and really help them grow within our space and making sure the environments are conducive to that. Um, so the bounds of what this looks like could be endless, but there's also so many different avenues you have to be pretty concentrated up front. Um, what, what you guys said is absolutely true and that will continue to grow, but there's also the other end. One could do analytics about uh, how to make the game more appealing to the fans. One could do analytics about uh, the effect of rule changes. One could do analytics about uh, uh, the structure of the league and the media arrangements. One could do analytics about what is fair in terms of sharing the money. We don't really, we haven't grown into those areas, and at some point we need to do so, and that requires one of two things. It requires either an effective writer who can introduce those areas to the public, or somebody who can figure out some way to make money off of it. Uh, and uh, until one of those things happens, those areas aren't going to grow. But there is a lot of value to the analytics world if they, if they were to happen to explode. And there's somebody in this room who has one of those skill sets, so God bless you. <laughs> so yeah, you hear this critique a lot, uh, that analytics has ruined baseball, made it all about the three true outcomes, right? Um, fewer balls in play a long uh, time of game. I mean, do you think that critique is fundamentally correct or, or incorrect? I guess we'll start with Bill. I don't have a damn thing to do with it. The, uh, <laughs> all of the trends that trouble baseball, uh, the more frequent pitching changes, the, um, you know, I never ask a hitter to step out of the box between pitches. I had nothing to do with it. The, um, the, ever-increasing strikeouts and home runs, those trends all go back to the 19th century, and they went, ran all the way through the 20th century, and they kind of exploded in the 21st century, and that may be partially attributable to analytics, but not really. It's, it's what it is, is long-term, very, very long-term trends that have pushed the game into a corner that we have not been able to figure out a way to break out of. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think analytics maybe has ex accelerated that trend to yeah. an extent. Um, you know, fun fundamentally, teams are, there's a set of rules for how the game is played, and they're trying to, within those rules, win as many games as they can. And so what analytics is, has done is to help determine what are the things that help teams win. And, and, and so that has made, I think, uh, you know, some of these opportunities for, for rule changes, for example, more important because now teams are very much looking for, well, how do we, how do we maximize every run that we, can, that we can gain or save? And um, yeah, so, so I do think, you know, it is about the rules. Analytics has, has maybe accelerated that, but I also agree with Bill. Analytics can help, right? Like, I think we can use the same tools to figure out if we change the game on the margins, how does that look? Right? How, do, how if we, um, you know, if we have bigger bases, we have Statcast, so we so we know how fast people run and take off, and we can actually measure what a uh, likely success rate would be for for stolen bases with the larger bases, and 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 decide if that's a, a better game. And I, I do think that you know the league's trying to do that. They do have a group that's working on that, and um, yeah. So, so hopefully. You know, we, we may have accelerated some of those negative trends, but hopefully we can accelerate the positive ones as well. You think about, I mean, I think 
Doug kind of nailed on some of the second and third order effects of these things. It's like when you have a general rule change, I think it's easy to come up with how that might change the gameplay from a player's perspective. But thinking about how teams are going to take advantage of those different uh, rule changes is another thing that you, it's a little less predictable. And it's within the team's every right to do so. Um, but uh, with that being said, it could, you, know, you could end up having something worse off than what you had gone off trying to fix. And there can be, so was it the Atlantic League where they moved the mound back a part of the season? Right. And there wasn't a terribly big difference? Am I remembering that wrong? What do you, what do you make of that? Is it a case of, um, you know, maybe players have a bigger break on their breaking pitches now? Maybe guys aren't adjusting over enough time. You would see an effect. Were you surprised by that? Yeah, I mean, I guess it was. The, the hitting is reaction time, right? So if you, if you give players more reaction time, you would expect better outcomes. Um, but it might be that just the, the foot and a half that they considered was not enough to see a statistically significant effect in the sample they had, right? At some, at some point, it's, um, yeah, we're trying to measure things that are relatively small. I think the, it's, yeah, it's some of that. I probably wasn't as shocked just given the, you know, the deviation of movement. Uh, there are other factors perceptually that come into play where you're, you know, when you're playing baseball up until you get to that point of being in professional baseball, like you have certain standards of where the mound is. And now your body is trying to reorganize itself right. perceptually of like, this ball is moving in this direction. I am anticipating it to be here and now it's there. Um, it's almost like you're playing wiffle ball a little bit. That's at the extreme level of this where your, your neurological system just cannot pick up on some of these subtle changes. That's fair. And, and there's a lot of muscle memory, I would think, in terms of like timing, yeah, yeah. when to go. Yeah, exactly. That's a fair point. Not being a, a hitter previously. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was kind of a hitter, so. Yeah. Bill, were you surprised by that? Um, there, there, are many, there are many places where you could make very, very small changes and have dramatic effects. And there are many places that one would expect large effects that wouldn't be there. You have all heard it said by broadcasters since you were young that baseball is amazing that after 150 years they're still throwing the runner out at first base by one step. But it's really not that amazing because as the game changes, the shortstop adjusts to where he can throw the guy out by one step. Uh, the game is adjusting within itself, which negates a lot of the changes you would expect. But that doesn't mean there isn't some little rule change that you could make that would have far-reaching and ugly effects. There's always the risk of that happening. Um, so I'm working on a new book. It's about uh, gambling and risk. And one theme is that people who take risk for a living aren't happy with being average, right? Um, if you get the average return playing in a poker tournament, then you lose money because the house wins money on average. Um, how do you deal with this? if you're working for a front office. And the question I have is, let's say you have um, a model, a projection system, a hypothesis that differs from the conventional wisdom or from the crowd. But usually the crowd is pretty smart, right? There are a lot of other smart folks working in front offices. How do you know that the result isn't BS? <laughs> um, a lot of testing. I mean, right, That fundamentally, that's the uh, I, I think over time, building confidence in, in those capabilities is about uh, validation. It's about seeing how things play out. Um, the, the, uh, I think most smart front offices still look at the, at the crowd, right? So they have their internal viewpoint and they have the external viewpoint, and they're balancing those to try to make a good decision. Yeah, I think that's where collaboration really comes into effect here in that you can have something that can move the projection system and how you look at players from a value standpoint. But when you're talking about things that are actionable, that you're trying to put on the field, I think it is you know, within every team's favor to outsource and get opinions from people outside that area. Um, and I think we've, we've saved ourselves in a lot of senses of getting a lot of really smart baseball people who are on the field every day to give opinions on these things and kind of updating our priors in that sense. I'd like to push back a little bit on the notion of the wisdom of crowds. It's certainly true, as you've demonstrated, that 
there are many areas in which uh, the consensus opinion of everybody is better than anybody's opinion. Uh, there's also a stupidity of crowds. The, uh, <laughs> and if you look at our, at our history, when I, was, when I was a young person, we had phenomenal levels of racism, sexism, child abuse, discrimination against LB, uh, I forget the expression, uh, you know what I mean. The, uh, and those were all consensus things. Everybody accepted them. Uh, and, and you look back and think, how in the hell could we have been so stupid? But uh, the human race is stupid on those issues for a thousand years, two thousand years. I don't know how long. The, um, and I'm not, I'm not that comfortable assuming that the crowd is smarter than the individual. I, that's never really been my experience. I, I will say, I think one of the challenges with uh, working within a front office is people kind of grow up in that environment together. They think about problems in the same way, they share the same ideas, they sort of build models that head in those directions. And so the external viewpoint is, you know, is helpful to provide another perspective to give, uh, to sort of challenge, uh, to challenge that internal view. Are there views within baseball where you think the consensus is wrong? I guess that's proprietary and you probably wouldn't want to talk about that, but you know, one that gets brought up sometimes is, is pitch counts. Uh, that guys survive for a long time throwing 130 pitches per game, 150, or if you're Nolan Ryan, 180 or something, right? Um, it probably had adverse effects, but not catastrophic necessarily. I mean, is that something where maybe we'll discover that the analytics were wrong or the consensus was wrong, or if not, which other areas might be vulnerable? If I could jump in. Uh, one thing I really wonder, I think there are, I think one, per, the, the extent to which analytics has been exploited successfully by teams is like 1%. I don't, I don't, I don't think we've made any. And I think we're wrong about lots and lots of things. But one thing I'd really like to hear Cole's opinion about the, uh, uh, is, um, do you think it's possible now to successfully build around, the, around smaller players who meet the ball, get on base? I mean, that, that type of player has been almost entirely driven out of the game because now everybody is swinging for the fences. And, and it's easy to say, why don't we go back to the smaller player who can, who can you know, punch the ball, get on base, and create runs? But uh, I just don't know whether it is actually still possible for those players to succeed at MLB. Yeah, I think when you're talking about the different routes players could take to bring value to a team, um, it just depends on the extremes of those things. Uh, if you're a player who is high contact um, and not doing as much damage, uh, to bring value, you need to make a disproportionate amount of contact relative to maybe a player who's doing a lot of impact, but maybe right. swinging and missing a lot. I do think there's also a social component to this where at the, at the youth level, um, what they see on TV and what's being uh, proposed as being valued uh, is another aspect of like, when we get a player, a lot of their systems are already kind of implanted and we're trying to make changes on the fringes. Um, and there are cases of guys making big changes, but for the most part, most players are making change, smaller changes right. to basically kind of take themselves from either being a, a bench player to an everyday player, an everyday player to an all-star, and so forth. So um, I think, you know, to kind of answer your question, I think, yes, there are probably some players in the future where contact is going to be way more important than it is now, but it also is just kind of a cost-benefit analysis and what makes sense in that area. Actually, Cole, your point, I think it's a really interesting one with the rule changes because a lot of the effect of these rule changes over time is changing the population of players, right? Because it's hard to change individual players on the margin. I mean, you can only change them on the margin. So if you suddenly, you know, if we deaden the ball where players can't hit home runs, it's going to be hard for those players who are swinging for the fences to adjust to that immediately. But over time, you're going to see the population of players change pretty dramatically. So, um, and, yeah, I'm hopeful that that's... And that's, and that's why small inc incremental changes are much better than sudden changes. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't want to... 
hit too hard on some of the three true outcomes here and like <laughs> home runs and strikeouts are really bad. And that's since like ever since I was a kid and probably most people here, when you watch ESPN, the quick highlights, and that's really where we're at right now is if you're on TikTok or if you're on uh, Twitter or Instagram, they're very quick snippets. And when you think about what's being shown, it's some guy throwing 100 miles an hour, blowing someone away, or some guy hitting it, you know, a million miles and really thinking about, okay, if we are going to make these huge changes, what is that effect going to be on some of these platforms where you're getting the quick snippets? It's a ground ball to the shortstop. Is that going to hit, that the guy beats out, is that going to hit like, you know, uh, someone hitting a home run at a big park? Yeah. I've been through this argument with Tom Tango, God knows how many times. But my response to that is, what happens is if you have fewer home runs is that the home run becomes a bigger event. If the home run is the big event, the more of them you have, the less big event it is. And, and we've reached the, a point at which, I don't forget the percentage of runs that score on, either know the percentage of runs that score on home runs anymore, but it's pretty high. And you, you reach a point at which what was once special has become so common that its, its specialness is not on the same level. That's, what I, that's my... Um, so we're talking about all these issues that baseball has. We're in a labor stoppage right now. Um, and yet, if you go to like uh, Forbes, they say the uh, least pricey baseball franchise, which I think is Tampa, is worth about a billion dollars, a lot of money. The Yankees are worth around five billion, I think, and those values keep going up year over year. Um, do you think franchise valuations are in like a bubble? <laughs> there's value and then there's value. You know, there are, diff there are different ways of, of I don't think we're in a bubble, no. I think the franchise values are going up because, unfortunately, we live in an America in which more and more of the wealth of the society is concentrated in fewer hands. And when you have more people who have obscene wealth, uh, you have the price of things that you can only buy with obscene wealth uh, goes up. The, uh, but that, there are other ways to measure the value of the franchise, and I think if you focus on the other ways of measuring the value of the franchise, over time, those two have to converge. Yeah, I guess this is a more sensitive topic, potentially. But do you guys have any thoughts you're willing to, able to share? I think that's right. I mean, at, at the end of the day, something sort of is valued at what people are willing to pay for it. And to Bill's point, it's, it's not like there are teams that are up for sale where they're not getting any bidders or any buyers. I mean, it's, it's a, um, yeah, people want to own teams. And so they're valuable as a result. Yeah, to Bill's point, I did some research a few years back where uh, appreciation of franchise values is highly correlated with how many billionaires live exactly. <laughs> in different cities, right? Exactly. Um, I, I guess it is. A, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I had ten billion dollars, I'd be funded like own the Yankees or something, right? Just got to figure out, you know, <laughs> another ten billion dollars, then we're good to go. Right. Um, another change in baseball over the past couple of years is uh, is the emergence of sports betting as an industry um, accepted practice. Um, Cole, if you were hiring for the Rays and there's some kid who has made their living uh, betting on baseball, is that a positive credential or is it, is it negative? Uh, as long as they stopped as soon as they were Rays employee, <laughs> it'd be fine. <laughs> um, I'd ask him to maybe do another sport. <laughs> uh, but... I don't necessarily think it's a red flag or even a cautious flag. I mean, I think it actually shows maybe some analytical prowess in some senses. But again, like these are sensitive topics within baseball and you want to make entirely sure when you bring this person on, like if that is their source of living for a long period of time that, you know, to some degree that, you know, you can, you can manage that, uh, that conversation and kind of steer them to something else. Does this, does this theoretical person wear a tiger's hat? <laughs> no, yeah. Do you want to work that, for the Rays? <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I have, we haven't even had baseball since sports gambling became legal in right. New York. Yeah. I, I better dodge the question. The company I work with is, I'm, I could say the wrong thing and offend people, which I, I've never done before. <laughs> Doug, I mean, are you getting clients, what if you had like some big hedge fund saying we want to have a sports betting practice and we want you to consult for us instead of like a team? Would you take that work? Um, or have you gotten that work? So, uh, 
I mean, our focus right now is just helping teams win more games. That's, that's fundamentally what we're, what we're trying to do. I mean, we're, we're building capabilities that in many ways complement and supplement what teams are doing internally. So it would be a challenge. I mean, I think in the same way that Cole mentioned with a, a, a candidate, you know, we, we have moved from 10 years ago where it would be more of a red flag. Like it'd be, it would be hard to hire someone into a team who, who had significant sports betting experience. And now it is more of something that's like, no, they have experience working with sports data and solving interesting problems. And uh, the, the challenge becomes how do you um, resolve that conflict at the time that they're hired? Hey, and, I, and similar for us. I'm sorry, didn't mean no, to interrupt. No uh, could I ask something? Are, are, are you guys, when I was with the Red Sox, we were prohibited from even having a fantasy, a rotisserie team, a fantasy team. Uh, and it's absurd, you know, you, you're not actually going to make a on-field decision for the Red Sox because it hurts your, helps your fantasy team. But, but the appearance of a conflict of interest, we were, are, is that still the rule? Yeah, I think as long as there's a financial gain in this that you cannot have a fantasy baseball team. Think, yeah. Or even, even like other gains, it doesn't necessarily. Every spring training they send around the letter. Yeah, yeah. People are pretty competitive, Bill. I wouldn't put it past some people to like be like, you know, I could use some more home runs and stuff like that. And... <laughs> that you could be right. I mean, um, you see it a little bit with soccer, with the you know EPL and how big that fantasy league has gotten. Not necessarily within the front office, but within the players, and how they you know. And I guess the same is with fantasy football. It's like the players have really gravitated to taking on that ownership of, hey, draft me, I'll make sure to score a touchdown today, or draft me, I'll score a goal today for our for your club. Um, so I do think baseball's not quite there yet, um, and I don't know if it should go there, but. It's something to see kind of how the landscape changes. I mean, do you think, I guess, Bill, I'm kind of, I'll go to you for this first, right? I went to a uh, New York Rangers game the other night, and they had three separate sports betting companies around the rink advertising, which I didn't even know you could do, right? I thought if you have, like, Coke, you're not going to have Pepsi on the other side of the rink, but, like, they had, like, DraftKings and FanDuel and MGM and Caesars, or three out of those four at least, right? Um, Do you think that the push toward gambling friendliness in sports is... Smart? Do you think it's a land grab that uh, is short-sighted? I mean, what do you what do you think? Uh, I, <clears throat> uh, well, conflicting thoughts. One is that most land rushes, as you say, in history, have had some um, some negative consequence that wasn't foreseen. But you can't live in fear. You know, the the sport cannot live in fear of of uh, activities that have been around since the beginning of human race. So, I mean, let's let it play out, and when it, it, when it hits a wall and explodes somewhere, then we'll deal with that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, catching in particular. Um, there are a huge number of very talented catching prospects nowadays, so I want to, A, well, let's ask the first question. A, is that just a cyclical thing? Why are there so many talented catchers? How many of them will end up being catchers in in five years, um, how is the defensive spectrum changing, if at all? That's like four different questions, so hopefully one of those prompts will get one of you to say something interesting. <laughs> so, I, I mean, it probably gets to some of the discussion we were having about um, analytics in general, is there is a, a broader understanding now of the value that a catcher brings to the team, right? The, the positional value, the framing value, pitch sequencing, different ways that a catcher can create value for the organization. And so I think more teams have placed an emphasis on developing those players as a result. Because it, um, and, and there probably is some cyclical element of just there's some really talented folks coming through uh, uh, the system at the same time. But I do think it's, you know, the, yeah, the teams are looking for ways to create value, and catchers are very valuable right now. I think really, too, is that teams also understand what kind of toll the catching position actually takes on that position. Um, and they're able to monitor those guys a little bit closer. So yes, you can have a, a big prospect uh, in high school, college, or even an A-ball. Um, but really giving them the longevity to kind of make it through the grueling minor league trek is what's kind of we're seeing more and more of and guys getting to the big leagues a little bit quicker. Well, I will give the most off-topic uh, answer of the entire uh, session. One thing that very few people know is that when Major League Baseball started, catchers were evaluated very much by speed. 
And one of the first things they looked for at a catcher was how fast he was. And the reason that's true is lots of balls went back to the screen. And there were, there were places where they played where the screen was a long way away. And so, so many balls went back to the screen that uh, it, it was, and so many wild pitches, pass balls, and stolen bases that it was really important how fast that catcher could get back to the screen. The general point being that, you know, the game evolves in ways that you don't always expect, and, and the emergence of a strong group of young catchers could mean something that we haven't picked up yet, or it could mean nothing. Yeah, I mean, actually, that point, the, the I mean, general trend toward catcher framing and the value that catcher framing provides, you have seen a lot more small athletic catchers who have quick wrists and strong wrists, and you know, maybe that translates to some hitting value as well. Um, What's the likelihood that we'll have automated ball and strike calling in the major leagues within a couple of years? I mean, it's in AAA this year, is that right? Yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, just generally speaking, you think about how many times a catcher can impact a game in every pitch that's thrown to him and the amount of value you can accrue, not only within the game, but over a course of a season. And effectively, you know, with the automated strike zone, um, that's going to impact that. It's going to impact it a lot. And the way teams will have to think about the players that are going to be able to man that position is going to be probably one of the biggest changes we've seen in a while, if that were to come to fruition. Um, but I think it's a lot of unknown, but you'd have to think on some level this is going to impact uh, you know, the value of, of catching in general. Well, I'd like to thank Cole for making my earlier points seem relevant. Uh, the... Um, <laughs> Uh, but I, I agree with that. But uh, so, so we need more speed guys back catching. It'll come. <laughs> <laughs> you were a catcher, right? Speed guy. Uh, I was too fast to be a catcher. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. Um, we're going to go to audience questions in a minute here. But let me see if I have anything left here. Um, okay. Again, you've all worked in front offices or are working. Um, how do you avoid being overly responsive? or maybe you don't, to your own personal incentives to keep your job, to get promoted, probably short-term thinking, as opposed to like the long-term interest of, of the franchise? Are there ways teams can set up compensation deals to make you think more long-term, or is that just kind of an unavoidable problem? We could never avoid it with the Red Sox. I mean, we were, we were successful a long period of time, but that problem was there all the time. You were, you were always dealing with I mean, the scouts rotate from team to team, and you know you can't evaluate a scout. It's hard to evaluate a scout analytically because the gap between when the player succeeds and when he's drafted is much, much longer than the length of time a scout tends to stay with the team. Uh, so it's just that that was that was a very real problem with the Red Sox. I mean, you think about some of the churn that is, Doug was, and, and Bill and I were talking back, how many people change teams and move out of baseball and how difficult that can be to build up a relationship with the team, a relationship with the culture of the office. Um, you know, you need to be in a place for a considerable amount of time to really feel those things. Um, so I think this is not just a baseball problem. This sounds like a business problem. Like every business is dealing with this on, uh, to some degree. And, you know, if you have answers, come find me afterwards. <laughs> I do, you know, I, we, we were having this conversation. I think one of the sources of competitive advantage for the Rays is the fact that they've been able to maintain sort of philosophical consistency around decision-making for the past 15 years. Like, there aren't many organizations in professional sports that can sort of build and learn and continue to evolve uh, in that way because there is uh, some amount of constant turnover. Um, sorry, I'm having a little trouble with the iPad. Okay, we're going to go to audience questions. These were submitted on Twitter, but unlike most things on Twitter, are nice, apparently. Mm. <laughs> um, if $10 million fell into your lap, what roles or technologies would you prioritize allocating those resources to? So, Cole, let's say you get, like, an additional $10 million. You can't spend it on yourself. You can spend it on hiring anybody you want or any technology you want. Where, where would that money go? Mm. I think it's the places where we have the biggest blind spots, and that would be within the lower levels, if that's international or at the FCL level, at least for us. Um, 
I think there are just so many uncovered things when you don't have a lot of the data sources that you have at the big league level. Uh, the, the closer you get to the big league level, the more, the more confident you feel about your, your systems. But I think the further away you get from that level, um, the more you're, you're kind of uh, using uh, judgment. And sometimes we know that can let you down. So I think I don't have a specific item, but I would say that probably pour that into uh, the infrastructure at the lower levels. His answer is perfect, and I couldn't improve on <laughs> Doug, uh, what do you always feel like, oh, if I had one more person to work, what would that person I mean, certainly if I, if I were a team and I had $10 million, I would make sure to carve off some of that for Zealous. Right? That's, I think that's an important <laughs> uh, part of the answer. But I, you know, I, th I think getting back to what we were talking about before, the, the movement into limb tracking and kinematics and being able to model off of that, even in terms of uh, thinking about how that affects scouting, Right, being able to identify things that you should look for in video, right, and connect those two domains is really powerful. And there's a lot of work there. Um, another question from the audience. Uh, so baseball is associated maybe more than any other sport with the rise of analytics in sports. Um, but to what extent, if anything, do you guys watch and learn from other sports? Um, if you're following, I mean, do you follow NBA or NHL or NFL <laughs> debates, right? Are there analogies you can make that are helpful or not, or is it just not a good use of your time overall? I mean, I, I guess from a, from a company perspective, a big part of what we're doing is working with multiple sports so that we can share methodological expertise, right? There is this general evolution of sports to working with player tracking data, to working with player movement data, and so, you know, even thinking about um, kind of taking snapshots of expected value, baseball's always been great at that because the game's discrete. But then how do you translate that to a continuous time environment? Uh, yeah, there, there are interesting uh, conceptual connections. And uh, um, it's also nice just to have people be able to jump around and move up, <laughs> work on different sports. Yeah, it seems like for us, because of the proprietary nature of some of the things that we work on. I think that it is definitely more on the idea generation standpoint and thinking about, okay, taking a concept that maybe another sport is using and maybe tweaking that a bit to fit within the baseball construct. Because um, it's really hard to get you know, a bunch of teams in a room and talk about you know, why you're good at what you do. Um, so I think it's, it, for us, is thinking more globally and keeping, you know, keeping our eyes open to different technologies or concepts or you know, frameworks that could possibly work within the baseball structure? Uh, two points. One, one is um, it's surprising how analytically similar football and baseball actually are. Uh, in baseball, you got three outs. In football, you got three shots, and, you know, and then you got it over. In baseball, you have generally, and this is part of the home run debate, but you, you you need a series of successful events in order to score. In, that's true in baseball and it's true in football. There's the, the home run in baseball and the long bomb in football. The, uh, and um, the number of scoring events in a game is actually quite similar. I mean, the scores look different because uh, football uses a, a weird scoring system, but, but analytically they're actually very same, very much the same. The second point is that basketball analytics are fascinating. They really are because the game is so fast and, and the, the states change so rapidly and the, uh, that I've, 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 to be honest, a lot of baseball analytics are over my head now. I, I can't really follow what you know, smart young guys do. No offense. The, uh, <laughs> the, uh, but basketball analytics are just fascinating to me. I, I, and I'll, at this conference, I'll... I love to talk to Daryl Morey and, and Mike Zarin and others about basketball analytics. To me, they're, the discussion is more alive at this moment and more moving in relevant ways than, than in baseball. I mean, how much of that is because uh, smart baseball analytics people have been captured by franchises? Which I guess is also true in the NBA, but it, it seems like there's like a little bit of a more robust community debate, right? There are like five or six new NBA metrics that have been invented that are mostly public domain now, right. um, which I don't think is, you don't see the speed of public stuff in baseball as much. I mean, is that, is that an issue? I guess, I guess you don't care. You'd hire some smart person, right? But we'll, like, we'll hire them as well, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah but, but up to 15 years ago, the best work in baseball was still being done in the public, right? Yeah. And it's just been over the past 15 years that a lot of those people are being hired within teams. There are more proprietary data sets. There are more, there's more proprietary work going on. And so there's just, there's less interesting public discussion around that work uh, than there is in basketball or even, you know, if you look at football right now, where it's very nascent. Um, yeah, there's a lot of interesting work that people are doing. Think about access to where the teams can have access to so many different data sources that the public is not currently able to possess and the speed at which the team can move given, you know, maybe back uh, 10 years ago, uh, the departments were a lot smaller and now they've grown substantially. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of really uh, expedited where the teams are, are relative to maybe some of the public research. Um, as you have these pipelines become more and more robust into baseball analytics, um, how do you avoid groupthink? Uh, I mean, are the people that you're hiring becoming more diverse in all the ways that implies, or is it kind of more you find a certain profile that's more cookie cutter? I think that one of the biggest things is people who have on-field baseball experience entering analytics bring to, within organizations, bring something that you can't get by hiring MIT people. No offense. <laughs> the, um, uh, the, uh, but uh, uh, so I, I think that that is freshening the field and causing it to develop beyond the understanding of old people like me. Yeah, I think disruption can be a good thing. Um, I think we are probably no bias, we're one of the more stable organizations. And I think even with us, within our group, um, we look to find places to really challenge our group if it's bringing in a new employee or if it's bringing access to player development in the research realm. Um, I think it's really about making sure that we have these disruption points uh, and challenge our assumptions on a lot of these cases. Yeah, I think teams are getting better about recognizing that a diversity of voices helps the decision-making process, right? That if you, again, it kind of connects to that external, external viewpoint. You need different perspectives. I mean, the Rays have uh, historically hired people without any baseball experience to come into R&D and analytics, and, and that's part of the justification for that. And um, yeah, so I, I, think, I think teams are moving in a good direction. Is, is there a female? I think the Astros, uh, one of their top level analyst is, is female, I think. Mm -hmm. But is, is there a relevant female perspective on that issue? Or is that, uh, is it uh, the game the same scene? I don't, I don't know. Maybe I should ask my wife this question. <laughs> I think, you know, teams are doing better with that aspect. And obviously, me sitting here as a male, I cannot completely speak on this. But I do think uh, more women within the game are holding positions at the VP level or director level and really having an impact on the decisions that are being made every day and being mentors to female and male counterparts. Um, and I think that getting that perspective is huge, uh, not only for the person that's sitting in that chair, but for the people coming up afterwards. Um, last question. Uh, so someone on Twitter claims that baseball injury rates have increased dramatically over the past 15 years. Um, Assuming that's true, tell me if it's not true. Um, why, I mean, does that surprise you? How come analytics hasn't helped uh, to reduce injury rates? Um, injury prediction is hard. And it's very, and it's very individual uh, specific. So I think this is where, you know, Cole, Cole talked about, we're sort of getting into this phase of highly personalized development in analytics and, and uh, you know, that's largely been the realm of sort of sports science. And um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, there'll be more of an impact moving forward. But I think you're right. Like, it, it hasn't been a, um, that's an area where analytics hasn't had a huge impact to date. I, I flat don't believe that injury rates have increased. Uh, I, I think, I, I just don't believe it. I haven't seen the evidence for it. And I, I, I don't, something I've heard forever. But I will say this. In, in a scout's room, uh, and you're, ta you're talking about drafting this guy or that guy, one phrase you hear many, many times is max effort. Uh, he's, he's a max effort guy, which means he's, he's working at the limits of his ability a little bit. 
Well, we have a lot of guys throwing 100 miles an hour now, and that's a real max effort thing. Uh, so it is certainly theoretically possible that, that, that the switch toward pitchers working 10 minutes at 100 miles an hour rather than working an hour at 94, that, that's, that there are injury consequences to that. Yeah. I think baseball, and kind of what Doug alluded to, is like we are definitely on the forefront on some of these more value creation from a transactional standpoint, but from the performance science standpoint, I would say have, and I think it's fair to say that we probably lag behind some other sports in building out robust apartments. And it's getting, it's expediting like quickly at the moment, but I do think performance science departments are relatively new within baseball that have been, you know, within uh, other places, like if it's soccer or um, rugby or, you know, any other European sports, I think they've had a, a much larger emphasis on these things in the past. Cool. We have literally three seconds left, so optimal time to uh, call it a panel. But thank you all so much. Yep. Okay. You made it. You made it. <laughs>